All right, everyone, let's get started. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ron Tesoriero. He's the uh, assistant professor of surgery here uh, at the university, and he's the associate program director for surgical critical care. He's done uh, did his uh, surgical training in Ohio and followed up with too many fellowships to count, endovascular, trauma, surgery, and critical care. Okay. And uh, but so he's a... A true expert on this topic today on uh, management of severe uh, pancreatitis in the ICU. All right, so thanks. All right. All right. Let's see. Is that too loud? A little bit. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. And thanks for the opportunity to come speak, Mike, um, to everyone. What I'm going to talk today about is just the ICU management of severe acute pancreatitis. We are going to cover um, a little bit about epidemiology, anatomy, and pathophysiology, and physiology of acute pancreatitis. What I'd like to do then is talk some time about what are the scoring systems, how do you decide whether a patient has severe acute pancreatitis, how can you try and predict mortality in this patient population, look at the evidence-based supportive treatment strategies we have in the ICU, then talk a little bit, little bit, little bit about interventional care, because um, a significant number of these patients will require some sort of intervention. Pan acute pancreatitis is a terrible calamity. It was first diagnosed, first described in the mid-1600s um, based off of autopsy data. And it's one of the worst types of intra-abdominal complicated disease that the surgeon will ever see. And some of the sickest patients you'll take care of in the ICU, at least from my perspective. There's about 210,000 admissions per year in the U.S. It's the third most common GI disorder that requires hospitalization, the third most common. And its incidence is increasing. Now, some of this may just be related to better diagnosis of a disease. But we're seeing this more and more and more and more severe acute cases of it. Thankfully, most of it is mild. You know, we all know most of these patients are going to be made NPO for a day or two. That may not even be necessary. They're going to go home within two or three days from their admission. But about 30% are going to develop a severe pancreatitis or a moderately severe pancreatitis. And the overall mortality, although it's overall is only 5%, in these severe cases, a quarter of the patients are going to die. And when you look at the patients with necrotizing pancreatitis, which is about a quarter of that severe population, the mortality is even greater. And when you look at patients that develop infectious complications related to their necrotizing pancreatitis, the mortality can be as high as 70% in this patient population. So it really behooves us to have an overall understanding of these patients and treat them aggressively. And so just going overall, so about one-third of all the patients you see with pancreatitis will be severe. Of those that develop severe pancreatitis, a quarter of those patients are going to die, and it just gets worse if they have necrotizing pancreatitis, and it gets worse if they have infectious pancreatitis. Now, some of the overall, I mean, I showed a bunch of different percentages, 10 to 70% mortality. Some of this has to be do with where are you when you treat the patient? Does the patient come to a tertiary referral center or a community center? Is it a specialized center? What's the socioeconomic status of the patient? But overall, these patients can do, at least initially, quite poorly and, and take up a lot of resources. If you look at the average cost to treat acute severe pancreatitis to get one survivor is $130,000. And you'll see this number a couple other times in the talk. And though they have prolonged ICU and hospital length of stays, if they make it out of the hospital, most of them will go back to have a pretty good quality of life, at least similar to their matched cohort. All right. So I'm going to talk briefly about anatomy, only because it impacts how we think about the disease. It's unbelievable how such a small organ can cause so much pain and suffering. You know, it's a small retroperitoneal organ, and the reason it causes so much difficulty, it's, so, it's in such proximity to so many vital structures. 
right? It sits right behind the SMA and the SMV. It can cause portal vein thrombosis. It can cause duodenal obstruction and gastric outlet obstruction. It can cause necrosis of the transverse colon and clonic ileus. All of those things can contribute to abdominal compartment syndrome. Because of its intimate association with such vascular structures, the hemorrhagic complications can be considerable. Um, it sits over the L1 and L2 vertebra, which makes it prone to traumatic injury and hyperflexion and hyperextension. And then, so just the, the whole tale of its anatomy talks about um, why it's such a difficult organ to, to deal with. I only put this up there just so you have it in your, in your background to talk about some of the ductal anatomy, realizing that it's two different ducts that fuse together and a failure of fusion can cause pancreatic divism, which is a rare cause of pancreatitis, but one you should look for. I put this up here to talk about the common channel theory. If you look, about 10% of patients have a long common channel where the pancreatic duct and the, the bile duct course for a prolonged period of time. Those are the patients who are really at risk for development of pancreatitis related to gallstone pancreatitis and cholecolecolithiasis, and probably related to pancreatitis. And it probably explains why only about 10% of patients that have cholecolecolithiasis wind up getting gallstone pancreatitis. I'm just going to skip over that. Just briefly about the physiology, because that's not what this talk is about overall. Most of the pancreas is an exocrine organ. It's 85% of its structure is exocrine in nature. It makes about 1,500 cc's of fluid a day, a very bicarbonate-rich fluid. And this is important um, because that bicarbonate-rich fluid is supposed to get to the duodenum and to decrease acidification, because it's duodenal acidification that leads to ongoing CCK production and ongoing pancreatic stimulation. And we'll see this impacts why some patients have you know, continued development of pancreatitis and continued pancreatic stimulation. The other thing it does is it releases all of these proteolytic enzymes, all of which are supposed to be inactive in the pancreas. They're all supposed to get activated at the brush border in the small bowel far away from the pancreas. But what we're going to see in the pathophysiology of the disease is for some reason these, <clears throat> these uh, enzymes get activated within the acinus itself. And then I'm not going to go into the pancreatic endocrine physiology other than to say it's only about 2% of the gland. Most of it is about making insulin so you're not a diabetic. And that you have to lose about 80% of the gland if it's a normal function before you develop diabetes. Right? So when we talk about the pathophysiology of the disease, this is really related to the inappropriate activization of trypsinogen to trypsin within the acinus itself. And then trypsin goes on to activate all of these other supposedly inactive enzymes you get destruction of the acinus, leakage into the, the pancreas itself, and then you get pancreatic local destruction. Right. And we don't know exactly what the mechanism involves. It's probably a disruption of calcium signaling mechanism that allows this cleavage to occur, and it has something to do with decreased activity of um, pancreatic trypsin inhibitor. So when you look at this, it happens sort of in phases. And the first phase is this premature activation of trypsin within the acinus itself. Then it's leakage of the inflammation out into the pancreas, causing pancreatic injury and destruction. And the third phase is an extra pancreatic inflammation. And th what happens is you get an activation of inflammatory cells and the cytokines that go out throughout the body and injure other areas. And if you look, I'm not going to go through all of this, but these are some of the enzymes that are released. This, this phospholipase, which becomes phospholipase A2, is what really affects your pulmonary function. Complement leads to microcirculatory thrombosis and a lot of the multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. And all of these pro-inflammatory cytokines lead to um, inflammatory cells migrating into these areas of beds and causing further destruction and injury. So again, in most pancreatitis, it's mild, thankfully. 
but sometimes we have a loss of the balance between the pro and anti-inflammatory factors. And there's probably genetic polymorphisms that put patients at risk. Similar to that, we found that there's genetic polymorphisms that make you more risky or more um, at risk of developing sepsis and severe sepsis syndrome. The same holds true likely for pancreatitis. When you look at the overall how it develops, I want you to think about severe pancreatitis in two phases. Right? The first phase is the first one to two weeks, and the second phase is sort of weeks three, four, and beyond. And phase one is really about organ failure. Right? It's SIRS, associated pulmonary cardiovascular and renal insufficiency in that phase. And a lot of this is driven by pancreatic necrosis. What you'll see is that most patients with severe organ dysfunction are going to have a significant level of pancreatic necrosis. Importantly, most necrosis isn't present on admission. So if you get a CT scan of these patients the day they come into the emergency department, you're not going, to see them, not going to see the necrosis, unless their symptoms have been present for three or four days. The necrosis develops internally. Those CT scans that you get from the emergency department the day of the day or the index day of their, their symptoms don't really help you in deciding who's going to have severe pancreatitis or not. The second phase is all about late deterioration of organ function, and most of this is infection, infectious complications of their necrosis. So I want you to think about that in the patient that had their initial hit, initially had whatever rocky course they had in the first two days, they're getting better. Now they take a dip and a decline in weeks three and four. You should be thinking infection of their pancreas, infection of their pancreas, infection of their pancreas, and then maybe some other associated infections related to being in the ICU. If you look at all comers with significant amount of necrosis, I'm not talking 10 or 20%, but over 30% necrosis, somewhere between 40 to 70% of those patients will ultimately develop infection within their necrotic tissue. And the more necrosis you have, the higher chance you have of infection within those tissues. So looking at overall, and I'll just sort of blow through this very quickly, the overall systemic effects, we've seen, whoa, <laughs> we've seen what these patients look like. They, come, they can come in in profound hypotension and, hypotension and shock with acidosis, hyperlactemia, and although a lot of this is related to hypovolemia, it's not all related to hypovolemia. And you make the mistake of thinking all they need is aggressive fluid resuscitation. There's a lot of vasodilation that happens in these patients very similar to severe sepsis. It's just like severe sepsis related to the cytokine response. And there happens to be a significant amount of myocardial dysfunction in these patients as well. Right? So though the patients tend to need a lot of fluid, really using goal-directed therapy for these patients is important. And I would suggest that probably using invasive monitoring, whether it be a Vigileo or, God forbid, if you think about a PA catheter, or non-invasive monitoring like echocardiography to look to see just how much myocardial dysfunction is there. And not just using the drug of fluids to over-resuscitate a patient, but when appropriate, adding vasopressor support and inotropic support for these patients. Because what we'll see a little later on is that if you over-resuscitate, you can negatively impact their outcomes as well. Right? The most frequent dysfunction you're going to see is respiratory dysfunction. Right. Um, oh, see, I forgot to erase this from last time. But, and a lot of this is related to the release of phospholipase A2 from the pancreas going to the capillaries within the, the lung itself and just getting adsorbed there, activating um, a decreased level of surfactant and causing um, atelectasis and causing adhesion, mo adhesion molecule, molecules within the, the uh, endothelium to be released to help migratory mi migration of inflammatory cells. And so what you'll see is that almost all the patients will have some degree of respiratory dysfunction. But they'll go anywhere from just some mild ARDS all the way up to severe ARDS with PDF ratios of far less than 100. They get microcirculatory thrombi, and, and it's one of the most significant disease processes you're going to see in this patient. The only thing I just wanted to point out is that pleural fusion on, on presentation is, is, in, is indicative of severe pancreatitis. So you should be very worried about a patient that presents on admission with pleural fusions. 
that's a patient you can be fairly certain is going to have several levels of organ failure, you're going to have a severe course of disease. The renal injury is multifactorial. It's, some of it is hypovolemia, some of it is hypotension, some of it is direct cytokine injury and ATN. Um, the best thing that you can do for these patients is, as I said before, directed volume resuscitation and making sure they have adequate inotropic and vasopressor support. And there may be some role for early aggressive CRRT in these patients independent of just treating their acute kidney injury. These patients can also develop a profound encephalopathy, and this is not just ICU delirium. This is actually toxic edema of neurons related to, to um, phospholipase A2 damage to the blood-brain barrier. And additionally, the patients can develop a significant degree of hepatic injury that contributes to, to worsening of their pancreatitis and to death in these patients. And the mechanism is unclear, but involves some sort of apoptosis and that whole cytokine-mediated endothelial damage that we talked about. The most significant complication these patients get what really contributes to the mortality are infective complications. And as I said before, up to 70% of the patients with severe pancreatitis with necrosis will develop an infection somewhere along the way. The mortality in those patients, the mean is 50%, can be, a, can be as high as 70%, as I pointed out. And what we think this is caused to is breakdown of the intestinal barrier related to ischemia reperfusion injury. You know, you add in significant periods where patients become NPO and they get villous atrophy and you can have translocation of bacteria. So there are three or four different ways the, the pancreas can get infected. It can get infected from hematogenous spread to direct lymphatic, excuse me, lymphatic spread, direct peritoneal spread, or from biliary or from bile that's infected getting into the pancreas. It's a combination of all four of those things. The other thing we see that independent of all this, the rate of ventilator-associated pneumonia, catheter-associated um, urinary tract infections and bloodstream infections are higher in these patients because they have some degree of immunocompromise. And then lastly, these patients have a significant risk of developing intra-abdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome, probably related to the capillary permeabilities from cytokine injury and from um, reactive oxygen species endothelial damage. They get a, just a ton of visceral and retroperitoneal edema. They can get bowel dilatation secondary to paralytic ileus and gastric outlet obstruction related to ischemia of the colon and colonic ileus. And then I won't go, you know, the itinerant normal things that happen in abdominal compartment syndrome that can contribute to and add on to the organ failure these patients are already at risk for. So just very briefly to talk about etiology, most of the pancreatitis in this country comes from gallstones and alcohol, right? up to 70 to 80%. And in this country, alcohol is a leading cause. In Europe, it's gallstones. But it's the overwhelming majority of them. People will next say that um, the next leading cause is idiopathic, right? So about 25% of patients will have idiopathic pancreatitis. But what we'll see is that most of those idiopathic pancreatitis are actually gallstone, microlithiasis. You won't see it on an ultrasound, but if you go and you sample their bile, they get an endoscopic ultrasound, you'll pick it up. So when you account for those, you know, 95% of the patients with pancreatitis have gallstones, microlithiasis, or alcohol. The third leading cause is hypertriglyceridemia, not including the idiopathic patients. This was that common channel theory I was talking about before. What you see is most patients that develop pancreatitis related to cholelithiasis and cholelithiasis have a long common channel. It allows that stone to get impacted there and allows bile to reflux back into the pancreatic tuct and cause hypertension within the pancreatic duct itself. And so this is the obstruction hypersecretion theory. So in addition to bile backing up in there, because you don't get that, that bicarbonate-rich fluid getting into the small bowel and 
dilute or deacidifying the uh, first portion of the duty and you get increased CCK production, ongoing secretion of enzymes, just drives the whole thing forward. So one of the things that you can do um, for these patients, just put them on a PPI. Put them on a PPI to make sure that you're actually are decreasing the acid output, decreasing the acidification of the duodenum, and you may decrease the overall worsening of their pancreatitis. For alcohol, no one is exactly sure why alcohol causes this. Um, it's, there's several different theories. One is there's a direct toxic effect to the acinus. Two is that ethanol increases the sphincter of OD, so you get the same thing, pressure, so you get the same thing you get in gallstone pancreatitis. One, another is that it actually stimulates gastric acid secretion and duodenal acidification, so it may have in this already studying increase of CCK production. And significant levels of, of alcohol can also induce some hypertriglyceridemia, which may put a second hit onto the pancreas in these patients. And then, can you believe that? I just, <laughs> I can never get over that. So that's a patient with type five hyperlipoproteinemia. Um, so the two common metabolic causes are hypertriglyceridemia, which we already talked about as the third leading cause, and then hypercalcemia. You don't really see it unless the triglyceride levels are greater than 1,000 milligrams per deciliter. It's the most common cause is type 5 hyperlipoproteinemia. There can be secondary causes like pregnancy, diabetes, severe alcohol intake um, that can all lead to hypertriglyceridemia out of, out of the familial ones and then, if I didn't say it, obesity. And why it happens is unclear. For hypercalcemia, it's most often associated with hyperparathyroidism. Um, and we think it has something to do with the calcium um, signaling within the acinus itself uh, leading to trypsinogen activation. And this is what I was mentioning before is that for the idiopathic, up to 70% of patients, if you go and you actually aspirate their bile, will have microlithiasis. If you do an ERCP and sphincterotomy, take their gallbladder out or put them on ursodiol, the rate of having recurrent pancreatitis drops to nil. So it clearly is related to the microlithiasis. So overwhelmingly, the patients that have idiopathic pancreatitis you should be thinking this, especially if it's recurrent, maybe not one episode, but a second episode, that this is maybe the cause and referring those patients for having their gallbladder out or for further testing. And then about 5%, one to five, or a small number are atrogenic, about 5% of patients who undergo ERCP and sphincterotomy will develop pancreatitis. Thankfully, most of it is mild and non-severe. All right, so just conclusions. Most of the cases of the pancreatitis are gonna be due to colothiasis and alcohol. If they, don't, if they don't have either one of those etiologic factors, you should be looking for hypertriglyceridemia. You should probably be looking if they're, being, they're admitted to your ICU at all because it can contribute to the disease if they have alcohol-induced pancreatitis. And you should be cautious if you're gonna use propofol sedation in those patients or give them TPN and interlipids. And then if they have recurrent idiopathic pancreatitis, you really should consider that they have microlithiasis and refer those patients for cholecystectomy or if they have severe pancreatitis, perhaps, and they're not a candidate for early cholecystectomy, doing an endoscopic sphincterotomy or putting them on ursodiol. So they're in your IC or they're in your ER now, and how do you try and, one, just quickly make the, well, quickly cover the diagnosis, but two, really risk stratify. The diagnosis is clear, you have to have two of these three things. This is the Atlanta classification, Atlanta criteria for diagnosing pancreatitis. You have to have characteristic abdominal pain, amylase lipase three times normal, or CT or imaging findings consistent with pancreatitis. You just need two or three because some of the, some of the chronic pancreatitics won't be able to ele elevate their amylase and lipase, but they'll have one and three. Your obtunded patient may not be able to tell you they have abdominal pain, but they'll have two and three. So that's why the diagnostic criteria is just two or three of those. I just want to remind you that the degree of hyperamylosemia or lipasemia is not correlatory with the degree of severity of pancreatitis. 
just because you know, recently we've been seeing all kinds of crazy high lipase levels of like 25,000 and 30,000. It has nothing to do with whether your patient's going to do poorly or not, or whether they're going to develop severe pancreatitis. And I would just also caution you that you should probably use lipase more than amylase, because there are a bunch of diseases you see over here on the right that can falsely elevate your amylase level. Some of them will give you abdominal pain as well, and you'll misclassify these patients as having pancreatitis when they have some other disease process. When you look at what imaging study you should be using to diagnose pancreatitis, clearly the most utilized is contrast-enhanced CT. Right? It has a very good sensitivity and specificity for pancreatitis, and most specifically for developing or diagnosing necrotizing pancreatitis. But again, if you get it too early, you're going to miss patients who have necrotizing pancreatitis. Again, so generally speaking, if you want to pick up necro necrosis, you should be getting that CT on sort of day three to four from when their symptoms developed. Endoscopic ultrasound is very good for diagnosing um, not only gallstones, but cholelithiasis and picking up pancreatitis. MRCP is as sensitive and specific as CT for diagnosing severe pancreatitis and for necrosis, and it may be an option for your patients who have acute kidney injury on day three. You can't get that contrast-enhanced CT scan now. And you have the benefit if you do an, MRC, an MRCP of looking at the duct and looking for ductal disruption and those sorts of things that may need treatment from your uh, GI physicians. And in transabdominal ultrasound, other than diagnosing cholelithiasis, is sort of, I won't say useless, but not very useful for classifying degree of pancreatitis. So how do we risk stratify and score these patients? If you look, you know, we've said this a couple times already, that the mortality and morbidity goes up depending on what sort of pancreatitis you have and, what's, and whether you have fluid collections or whether you have necrosis. So it behooves you to sort of pick up early or as early as you can which of the patients are going to flip over to the severe category of pancreatitis? The Atlanta classification system, or the Atlanta conference and classification came out in the early 90s to try and better describe what is really, you know, what are we talking about with severe pancreatitis? Because before that, the diagnoses and most of the studies were all over the board in terms of what constituted pancreatitis, severe pancreatitis. And so these were just the different classification system they had at that initial conference in 1992. And they defined severe pancreatitis as having more than three ransoms criteria and an Apache score of more than eight, all right? or having any degree of organ failure, or having any of the following complications. But this was a really blunt tool, because they didn't define what organ failure meant. They didn't define whether more organ failure was worse than less organ failure, whether it was transient or um, continuous. And they didn't really make any distinction between pseudocyst, abscess, and necrosis. And I would suggest that pseudocyst is a fairly minor complication that happens down the line compared to these things like uh, necrosis and abscess up front. When you look at Ranson's criteria, this was initially, initially established in the 1970s. You know, it's either gallstone or non-gallstone. Most of us memorize one of these two. And it's probably the most asked of question of the medical students on surgical rotations because it's an easy question to answer. And if you look at it in the 1970s, it correlated with mortality. So if you had zero to three, you had a low rate of mortality, and the mortality went up. And this is why people before it said if you had three Ranson's criteria, you should be admitted to an ICU, because look at the level of mortality there. But there have been multiple studies since that time in the late 90s, early 2000s, that show that Ranson criteria is very poor correlation with mortality. This probably has a lot to do with, I hope, all of us, and that we're just better at delivering care to these patients. If you look at Apache 2 scores, this is what the Apache 2 scoring system looks like, at least part of it. This is not a very easy bedside test to do to try and restratify somebody. This is used more for defining it later on in their hospital course. Right. 
So the Balthasar, has anybody heard of the Balthasar CT criteria? So this was established in the, initially defined in the mid-1980s, believe it or not, and, and stratified patients into sort of five different categories, A3, depending on whether the pancreas looked like, right? He then revised that in the mid-90s to include what did the pancreas look like and how much necrosis was there. And it's actually correlated with, um, excuse me, so what they saw was you could define mild pancreatitis as a score of three or less severe pancreatitis greater than seven, and then everything in the middle was sort of moderate, and actually correlated with complications and mortality. So if you had a score of zero to three, you had an 8% complication risk, and it you know, quadrupled or quintupled or whatever it is if you had four to six, and was, if you had seven to 10, your complication rate went up significantly, right? And then if you add in um, extra pancreatic complications such as pleural effusion, ascites, um, pseudocyst abscess and GI tract involvement, and add that to the score, the sensitivity is even greater. So it's a very easy thing you can do for your patients who have a CT scan to help predict severe acute pancreatitis. But the real crux of this, the, what really causes the mortality, at least early, is the persistent multisystem organ failure. Right? That's what you really want. Those are the, two, the things that you really want to know. And so, in just, I just want to tell you where we are right now. This is how you should be thinking about and defining pancreatitis in your units. This is what we're trying to use in terms of standardizing studies and talking about it in the literature. As you talk about two types of acute pancreatitis, your, your patient either has interstitial edematous or necrotizing pancreatitis. Right? They're either in they're one of two phases of the disease. They're either in an early phase, which is characterized by organ failure, um, and its severity is primarily how persistent is that organ failure, and then potentially local complications. The late phase really only occurs for in patients that have moderately or severe acute pancreatitis, and it's really defined by organ failure. Organ failure, for their purposes, is defined using the Marshall scoring system, and really just looks at respiratory renal dysfunction and cardiovascular dysfunction. You want to talk about whether your patient has transient organ failures for the less than 48 hours or persistent organ failure greater than 48 hours. And then if I have the reference here, it's a really nice article that really defines what, is, what are all these different things. What is a pancreatic and peripancreatic fluid collection? What's a pseudocyst? What are all these things so we can all talk equally when we look at studies going on in the future? And so essentially, mild pancreatitis is no organ failure. Moderate pancreatitis is transient organ failure or some local or systemic complications. And severe pancreatitis is persistent organ failure. The other things I just want you to alert you to is some of the initial things that can predict severity, and don't, don't, don't yell at me, I didn't say that this was older age, is patients who are older are more likely to present with pancreatitis are more likely to have severe pancreatitis. This is probably related to comorbidities that have had a lifetime to develop complications. You've got a lifetime of hypertension or a lifetime of diabetes, and so you're more at risk for peripheral vascular disease. Beware the obese patient that presents with pancreatitis. They'll have much worse SIRS and much more local complications, although it hasn't been borne out in terms of overall mortality in these patients. Obviously, the patient that presents with organ failure and a patient that presents with pleural fusion or infiltrate. On laboratory evaluation, the thing I want to point out is the patient that comes in hemoconcentrated or more significantly in the first 24 hours becomes more hemoconcentrated is very correlatory of development of necrosis. It has to do with you not keeping up with their fluid resuscitation needs. Um, I sort of never forget the patient we had that came into the ED with a he, you know, hematocrit of 40% and then left the AMA and came back with a hematocrit of 56% the next day and then left the hospital 12 months later. As <laughs> With, with essentially zero pancreatic function left, you know, a diabetic cripple and everything else to drive that home. Um, there's also been studies that show an elevated CRP, which we never get here, correlates with severe pancreatitis, and then pro-calcitonin levels that are elevated 
often done in Europe, may really uh, be predictive of development of infection in these patients. All right. So just briefly, again, so for those who have, I would just, you know, really sit down and learn the CT severity index, you know, so we can all talk about the same things when we talk to each other. Calculate it for the patients if they have a CT or MRI, but really wait until day three or four in these patients if you can to try and diagnose necrosis or think about repeating the CT scan or an MRI on days three or four for the patient that's having more than just transient organ failure. Um, look for the patient that doesn't have organ, that has organ failure, doesn't rapidly respond, and just be aware of the old, the obese, and those that present with hemoconcentration and pleural effusions. Those are all markers of having, going to develop severe disease. So I want to spend some time, at least the bulk of the rest of the time, talking about treatment, and is there any data to help drive our treatment in these patients? Mostly it's about initial stabilization and resuscitation, treatment and prevention of organ failure, but there are a few questions. Is there an optimal fluid management strategy? Right. Is there an optimal nutritional route or how should we be supporting these patients while they're getting better? Is there any role for prophylactic antibiotics in these patients? Does ERCP change the course of the disease? Does CRT have a role in treatment? And when and, and what interventional surgical therapy should we be utilizing? So most of the initial treatment is the judicious, and by judicious I don't mean too much, I mean the right amount of fluid resuscitation. So this should be endpoint driven, although I'm not gonna get into what the endpoints should be. Most of these patients that are in the ICU really should have a fully catheter placed so you can monitor your urine output. That's at least one endpoint you can monitor in the patient that doesn't have acute kidney injury. They should get an NG tube up front because they're at a profound risk for developing a gastric ileus that can contribute to abdominal compartment syndrome. You're probably gonna have them on a PPI for seven other reasons, but one of the reasons to put them on it is to minimize duodenal acidification and worsening of pancreatitis. Most of these patients are gonna need at least, are gonna need some degree of invasive access for monitoring, um, most likely uh, um, central venous catheters and arterial access, perhaps with a vigileo, so you can look at cardiac output and index. And they're gonna require a variable amount of respiratory support, and most of the severe pancreatitis patients are gonna require intubation and mechanical ventilation. So the first question is, is there anything out there to help guide our fluid therapy? And I'm gonna say the answer is no, but I'm gonna show you that in three or four different studies. So the first one to talk about is just a prospective cohort study in the American Journal of Gastroenterology from 2011. It looked at 247 um, consecutive acute pancreatitis patients. And they just looked at what did they get in the initial 24 hours. And what they saw is that the goal for the people admitting these patients was to give them three to four liters of fluid. I'm not really sure why that was their just goal. Their set goal was we're gonna give them at least three or four liters of fluid. They then divided the patients up into how much did they get. So group A got less than 3.1, group B got 3.1 to 4.1, and group C got more than 4.1. What they saw is if you got more fluid, you had more chance of having persistent organ failure, more chance of having pancreatic complications and collections, higher respiratory insufficiency, and higher renal insufficiency. And, and, but if you got less than three liters of fluid, you didn't really do bad, right? So they said there was no increase in organ failure, no local complications, no necrosis or mortality increase if you got too, you know, too little or less than three liters of fluid. The problem is, is, is that you can't really look at reverse causation. Did they get more fluid because they were just sicker? And if you looked at how they defined who needed more fluid, if you had a low urine output, you got more fluid than normal. If you had a low blood pressure, you got more fluid than the other group did. So I would suggest that some of this is just a marker of the disease state at least in this study. The next was um, a comprehensive review of 15 different studies published in the Annals of Surgery, and what you really see is how much of a paucity of literature there is out there. 
So in regards to type of fluid, there's only two studies out there. One looked at uh, lactated ringers versus head of starch. Right. So, and then the other looked at normal saline versus lactated ringers. They didn't really see in either one of those groups any difference in mortality. They did see a slightly decreased risk of inflammatory markers in the, the LR group for the LR versus normal saline, which probably makes sense knowing what we know about normal saline resuscitation now. There's really not a lot there to guide us. In regard to fluid, not fluid, fluid rate and volume, they were split right down the middle. Four studies that said, oh, you should be really aggressive. And five studies that said, oh, if you're really aggressive, you're going to have more organ failure, pancreatic complications, sepsis, and acute and abdominal compartment syndrome. But again, correlation is not cause. And then for resuscitation goals, there were six studies that looked at that. For, for the most part, the goals in these studies were heart rate, blood pressure, urine output, and hematocrit levels. Not very good, in my opinion, markers of how you're doing your fluid resuscitation in these patients. And so they concluded, obviously, that the evidence is paltry and of poor quality to help guide us in terms of fluid therapy. So this same individual then just interestingly just did a survey of, in New Zealand, all the general surgeons, so this was trainees, consultants, um, fellows, in terms of how do they manage pancreatitis. And crystalloids, the preferred fluid therapy, but interestingly, again, normal saline, not anything else. The uh, colloid use was increased if the severity of pancreatitis was increased, but interestingly, for fellows, and for people who took care of a lot of pancreatitis, they tended not to use colloid. Uh, the most common colloid used was gel, which is similar to what's used in some places in Europe. More fluid was given if you had increased severity. Right? And as, if organ failure was present, 74% would pre pre prescribe more than four liters of fluid in that first 24 hours. And 92% used some sort of guide for fluid therapy, but most just used urine output, heart rate, systolic blood pressure, and CVP less than 50% used base excess and lactate to guide their resuscitation. And so they just concluded there's significant variation in fluid type and volume administered. So there's really nothing out there that can tell us what fluid should you use, should you add colloid to these patients or not. Um, what we can just say is that the hypotension, hyperperfusion is multifactorial. It's definitely at least a lot related to fluid being fluid down, but some of this is related to vasodilatation and cardiac dysfunction. Um, there's, in my opinion, a role for early echocardiography. There's nothing in the literature to support that. It's not just as simple as having, you know, giving three to four liters of fluid, which seems to be in a lot of people's minds out there. It really needs to be goal-oriented, but I can't tell you what goal you should use. <laughs> Probably should be some combination of urine output, lactate, SVO2, cardiac index, and echo-driven. Um, and, and it's unclear what the role for inotropes and vasopressors to support in there, but it should be based off what your cardiac function is. There's no clearly beneficial fluid, but most of the studies looked at high volume, normal saline resuscitation. You wonder how much is that contributing to the more overall mortality in this patient subset. You know, we know it contributes to renal dysfunction. We know it contributes to increased inflammatory markers related to the hyperchloremia. Be interesting to see if there was less normal saline, would the mortality get better in some of these patients? The role of colloid is unclear, but there is some evidence out there that in severe sepsis, um, dilute albumin may improve may have some improvement in outcomes, and maybe this will bear true in pancreatitis, but there's not enough information yet to say anything. And there is correlation that resuscitation contributes to the development of abdominal compartment syndrome and organ failure, but it's unclear what the relationship is. But there's definitely, not in the studies, but I think there's clear, there's definitely patients we over-resuscitate, we push into this disease, and it contributes to their overall mortality. So I'm going to shift gears here and talk about diet and nutrition. You know, how should we be supporting these patients? Because what you're going to see over the next five or 10 minutes is that this is the one place that we can actually significantly impact outcomes. All right. 
So if you just sort of do your job fluid resuscitation-wise, you're gonna be okay for most of the patients. But what you choose here, what you choose to do, will significantly out, impact outcomes. So going back to 2006, there's a randomized, um, there should be a meta-analysis of the, all the available randomized controlled trials. And what they saw, saw is that compared to TPN, enteral nutrition had a significant decrease in infectious morbidity, decreased hospital length of stay, a trend toward decreased organ failure, but no real effect on mortality at this study. And the results when they looked at some of the independent studies and markers measured was that there was decreased oxidative stress, that it hastens re resolution of the inflammatory disease process, and it certainly costs less. In some of the studies, it showed a trend toward decreased mortality in the patients required surgery. But what was clear in a bunch of the studies is that if you gave parenteral nutrition before days five to seven, you actually worsened outcomes in these patient populations. So what you should take from this meta-analysis is that early enteral nutrition is probably good, early TPN, is not good, probably harms your patients. This is corroborated, it's the same guy who just did another meta-analysis of some additional studies the next year and again saw decreased length of stay, faster resolution of SIRS, decreased infection rate, longer ileus if you didn't feed, and minimal, minimal exocrine stimulation if you did feed, and a benefit if it was started early within 72 hours of presentation. This um, meta-analysis was then published in 2008 and I just want to just look at all these Reduction. So you see nearly a 50% reduction in infectious complications, more than 50% reduction in death in the patients that got enteral nutrition compared to parenteral nutrition, significant decrease in pancreatic infection rate, both in pancreatic necrosis and abscess, and a decreased risk of organ failure in all the patients that got early enteral nutrition. They also saw, I'm sorry, I said that already, they also saw a difference in mortality. Since those studies, there have been several different ongoing, you know, a meta-analysis and evaluation of the data. So this is a 2010 Co Cochrane review, which again showed reduced mortality, reduced multiple organ failure, systemic complications, reduced ICU, ICU length of stay. This meta-analysis in 2012, so all the same things, decreased mortality, decreased organ failure, decreased length of stay, decreased surgical intervention rate, decreased infection rate, both in the pancreas and in the rest of the body, so a decreased catheter-associated infection rate. And same with this meta-analysis in 2013. This was significant, especially when nutrition was started within 48 hours of admission, right? So it's clear from all of this that if you start enteral nutrition early in your patient and can get them to tolerate it, you can actually impact outcomes in pancreatitis. And probably this all has to do with infectious outcomes, you know, probably maintaining that intestinal barrier in these patients prevents the infectious complications that develop in pancreatitis, and it probably all starts with a decreased infection and the necrosis in these patients. Give me a minute. <laughs> so I won't go through the slide, but I just, I've said this four times. So enteral nutrition, good. Parenteral nutrition, bad. Talk just very briefly about probiotics. I think most patients are, well, I'm sorry, we'll go back and say, there is some data, although not great, that there is, you know, decrease in antibiotic-associated diarrhea in critically ill patients treated with probiotics, decrease in C. diff development, maybe not treatment, decreased colonization of VRE, maybe decrease in VAP, but no decrease in ventilator days or mortality, um, decreased infectious complications in ICU length of stays for liver transplant and major abdominal surgery, and decreased infection rates in trauma. I think probably a lot of us are familiar with this study, or maybe not. So this was the randomized double-blind multicenter study that was published in La The Lancet in 2008 that showed an increase in mortality for patients that were getting probiotics. And this sort of put a damper on the whole probiotics in the ICU. And in fact, 
the position statement here in the Maryland ISUs is that you don't use probiotics because there may be an increased mortality based off of this study here. Most of that mortality, though, was in nine patients. Most of the difference you develop bowel ischemia in the probiotic group, and we'll get back to that in just a second. The most recent meta-analysis of all the data shows there's no benefit and no harm in these patients for probiotic use. So <clears throat> don't know where this will ultimately fall out, but it's hard to recommend its use at this point. If you go back and you look at that ProPatria study, or I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but what these patients were getting was a five or six different probiotics in combination with high volume soluble and insoluble fiber in the setting of ileus in these patients. And so they set up a local process of fermentation and stasis. And they all developed focal necrosis at that point. So when there was an independent review of the study, they found significant additions with design, conduct, and methodology to the point where the authors were going back and repeating the trial. So, so you're still gonna hear from people, probiotics bad, there's an increase in mortality shown in the study, it was a bad study. So I don't know where we're gonna fall out with all this, but it's hard to say anything one way or the other right now. So in response to Dr. McCurdy's question, does it matter where you feed the patient? Or does it matter if you feed in the stomach, in the small bowel, in the jejunum? And does post ampullary feeds really decrease the chance that pancreatitis will worsen? I will say that in healthy study volunteers, there's evidence that feeding in the duodenum, post ampullary, in the stomach are equally pancreatic stimulatory. They both stimulate compared to placebo where the patient got nothing. So there's definitely evidence that feeding gives some um, stimulation to the pancreas. But when you look at some of the data that's out there, so for early, this is a randomized trial of early NG feeding versus NPO in patients with moderate, not severe, but moderate acute pancreatitis. And there were just 35 patients, but they showed no worsening of pancreatitis. They showed a decreased use of opioid and pain scores in the patients that got early gastric feeding versus NPO. And there was no increased, no increased risk of food, or excuse, I'm sorry, there was a decreased risk of food intolerance in the patient that got fed into the stomach with tube feed. So this would suggest that gastric feeding is okay, at least in mild to moderate pancreatitis. This was a meta-analysis of the available studies for nasogastric versus nasojejunal, but I wanna caution you, nasojejunal was actually nasoduodenal. You know, someplace in the duodenum, but before the ligament of trites. Um, in predicted severe acute pancreatitis. So we don't know if they actually had severe acute pancreatitis, they just had predicted severe acute pancreatitis based off an admission Apache score of six to eight and a CRP of 150. But in this study, these 157 patients, the NG2 route was as well tolerated, or excuse me, was well tolerated 90%, and there was no significant difference in terms of tracheal aspiration, mortality, or ability to meet caloric goals. In fact, there was some, some of the data favored the nasogastric group versus the nasojejunal group. But I'll say you should look at it with a little bit of caution because the severe pancreatitis group is actually at a fairly high risk of developing gastric outlet obstruction related to fluid collections around the pancreas. That's obviously a huge one. But fluid collections around the pancreas and inflammation and compression of the duodenum related to the induration of the pancreas itself. There is data out there that shows that feeding distances beyond 20 centimeters from ligament of trites are non-stimulatory to the pancreas. Remember I told you before that the data says that gastric and duodenal feeding stimulates the pancreas the same, but feeding beyond 20 centimeters from the ligament of trites doesn't stimulate at all. Most of the enteral nutrition studies were jejunal feeds. So most of those studies I showed you for early enteral nutrition having benefit were jejunal feeds. So <clears throat> I think it's unclear. Definitely in mild, moderate pancreatitis, you can you know, feed those patients probably at admission and they do well. I think it's unclear what you should do with severe pancreatitis. So just to sort of review, Clearly, given patients' enteral nutrition, you know, cost less than TPN, 
your patients do better. They have better decreased mortality, organ failure, SIRS, um, decreased ICU length of stay, surgical intervention rate. Small studies show that NG and duodenal tube feeds are equivalent in mild, moderate pancreatitis and predicted severe acute pancreatitis. But I would just ask you, if you have a therapy that you know reduces mortality, organ failure, sepsis, infectious disease, do you want to play around for 48 to 72 hours with feeding the stomach and deciding whether or not they're going to tolerate it? Do you want to, on day, on day three, when most of the benefit is early enteral nutrition, say, okay, they're, they're not tolerating they're not tolerating gastro feeds. Now we'll get a post-ligonotrite feed in, and now we'll get them started. And you've missed your window to actually impact disease. So I would suggest that until more data is available, I would still shoot for post-ligonotrite feeds in these patients to get them on early, to get them to tolerate early enteral nutrition, because they do so much better if they get early enteral nutrition. So just some words about antibiotics. I think you're probably mostly all up to date on this at this point, although I still see patients treated with prophylactic antibiotics all the time. This all comes from early meta-analysis and some studies from the 80s and 90s that showed that there was a benefit to, to antibiotic treatment, especially when that antibiotic was miropenem. But if you look at most of those studies, those studies were flawed. A lot of times they included mild pancreatitis. They didn't have, they didn't have clear definable outcomes. They didn't have clear definable times for when they got antibiotics versus not. Um, and then there was also an improvement in mortality across time periods. So some of these studies looked at against historical control. So it's 1995, we decided to give everybody mirapenem and we're comparing it to patients in the 1980s. There may have been some improvements in critical care and support during that time period that actually reflected the improvement in mortality. And what they also saw was the more prophylactic antibiotics were used, there was a higher incidence of delayed infections. No different rate of infection, but delayed infections now with GPCs, especially MRSA and Candida, that were more difficult to treat than the garden variety Enterobacteriaceae. So if you look at most of the early studies, these are all the ones that were done before the 90s, and these are all sort of meta-analyses up to the mid-2000s. They all show decreased mortality, decreased mortality, decreased mortality. If you look after 2007, there's not a single meta-analysis that shows a decreased mortality for the use of prophylactic antibiotics in this patient population. And most of this started with this study by Dellinger in the Annals of Surgery in 2007. It's really the first good randomized prospective clinical trial for mirapenem versus placebo. So they had 100 patients who all had severe pancreatitis. They all had, if I remember correctly, a necrosis rate of at least 50%. So that was the average necrosis rate in this patient population. And they got randomized to mirapenem and placebo. Now there's a bunch of crosstalk. Some people got 12 hours of antibiotics before randomization. And there were a few people that were treated in each group, maybe 20 to 30% that were treated for other infections during that study time frame. But what you saw was that there was no difference in pancreatic infection, no difference in mortality, no difference in surgical intervention rate. In fact, it was not statistically significant, but all a little bit higher in the group that got prophylactic antibiotics. The most recent meta-analysis I could find, or at least relevant one in 2012, now looked at the, the last 11 randomized controlled trials and the same thing I said is that though there was a significant reduction in mortality before 2000, there's a lot of publication bias and problems with the studies, and that there's no evidence to support routine use of prophylactic antibiotics. And in fact, to show even a 5% difference, this is the sort of size randomized controlled trial you would need. So I think, at least right now, you should not be giving your patients prophylactic antibiotics. It doesn't decrease mortality, it doesn't decrease infection risk, just changes what you're getting infected with, it doesn't change your overall ICU infection rate either. 
Although in this study, they did say that there may be some small subset of patients that will benefit, but they weren't able to define who it would be. So you should only use antibiotics if you have cultural proven infection or if you have a high clinical and suspicion for interval development. So your patient's doing really well and pff, falls off the cliff, you know, two weeks or three weeks into this, you can start antibiotics at that point, you know, and then do a scan looking to see that they have air in the retroperitoneum or do an FNA to try and diagnose, replace a drain to try and diagnose infectious pancreatitis. Um, just a little bit about abdominal compartment syndrome. <clears throat> Most of these patients will have some degree of intra-abdominal hypertension. And I'm going to just caution you over the next few slides is that a lot of these studies are done in Asia and Europe. I don't know what their obesity rate is. We do know that obesity contributes to resting intra-abdominal pressure. So it's hard to know whether pressure of 12 means in a lot of our patient population with a BMI of 45 or 50. We do know that abdominal decompression especially if it's done inappropriately, it can lead to significant morbidity, morbidity, need for abdominal wall reconstruction down the line. But just to, a little bit to try and describe the overall rate of the problem, about 50% of patients in this prospective observational trial that looked at patients admitted with pancreatitis, excuse me, severe acute pancreatitis had intra-abdominal hypertension during their hospitalization. In fact, for those patients, most of them wound up having abdominal compartment syndrome. You look at this, the mean intra-abdominal pressure was 27 millimeters of mercury. What they saw in the study was that if you had abdominal hypertension or compartment syndrome, you had a higher admission Apache score and higher Ransom score. You had much higher organ dysfunction in the intra-abdominal hypertension group, and your mortality was higher. And so they concluded that it's a very common problem in severe pancreatitis, but it's not clear that any of the dysfunction is caused by intra-abdominal hypertension. It may just be reflective of the disease process itself. And they recommended against routine surgical decompression in those patients. This was a retrospective analysis looking at 74 patients during their first week of critical illness, and again, about a 60% rate of intra-abdominal hypertension in these patients. But there was no difference when they were admitted in their Apache 2 or Ranson scores. It was a little bit difficult to predict who was going to develop it. 27% had abdominal compartment syndrome. If you saw that if you, if you developed abdominal compartment syndrome, your risk of everything was significantly higher than if you didn't. Again, is this causative or is this just a reflection of the overall disease state? And in this prospective observational trial, they looked at 218 patients. So again, this is not necessarily everybody with severe acute pancreatitis, this is everybody who was admitted. The overall rate of abdominal hypertension was 17%, most of which was present on admission. So only 3% developed after admission. So for the most part, at least in this study, if your patient ha doesn't have it on admission, it's, they're probably not going to get it, at least according to this study. But in those patients that did have it, the mortality was significantly higher, and they were much more likely to develop organ failure. In most of these cases, the organ failure developed in line with intra-abdominal hypertension, but there were a few cases where clearly intra-abdominal hypertension preceded organ failure and were contributory, but it's still unclear whether there's a marker of disease. So how do you treat this stuff? How do you treat intra-abdominal hypertension, abdominal compartment syndrome? Well, you know it's, you know it's serious when there's a whole world society for the, you know, for the treatment of abdominal compartment syndrome. Surgical decompression is sort of the last option for your patients. You need to really go through all these different things. It's sort of fourfold. You should try and improve abdominal wall compliance, evacuate intraluminal contents, evacuate fluid collections, and then try and treat positive fluid balance. So that means if your patient is sitting in bed and they're guarding and they look uncomfortable and they're tensing their abdominal pressure, their, their abdominal musculature and they have intra-abdominal hypertension, it doesn't really mean anything. It's unclear that it actually has a negative attribute other than it tells you your patient needs to be more appropriately sedated and analgesed. You can actually use neuromuscular blockade 
in the short term if there's something else that's going to be treatable. So if you say, you know, I have abdominal pressure, it's over 20 right now, I'm trying to bridge somebody to get some fluid off of them in the next 24 hours, I think I can do that, it may be reasonable to paralyze those patients. And that short time frame also avoid head of bed elevation because you can contribute to the intra-abdominal hypertension. That's not a three-week treatment for intra-abdominal hypertension because we know that it has worsened outcomes for ventilator-associated pneumonia. Don't forget NG2 NG tube decompression. As I said before, these patients can develop significant gastric outlet obstruction, and you, if you don't think that stomach up there is contributing to that patient's abdominal hypertension, another reason to maybe get a post-ligament of traits tube feed in while you decompress the stomach. Don't forget rectal decompression. These patients can develop a profound colonic ileus, and go early for prokinetic agents for these patients as well. Pay attention to, to intra-abdominal fluid. Just because it's not massive ascites doesn't mean that tapping it won't actually get two or three liters off and decrease your patient's abdominal hypertension. And percutaneously drain large pancreatic fluid collections. Avoid excessive fluid resuscitation. Try and diurese the patient if you can, if it's day three or four in their hospitalization. No one knows what the right role for colloid, colloid or hypertonic fluid is. And then there's some evidence about in the patient you can't get fluid off using hemodialysis or ultrafiltration. And then as we're going to see, there may be some evidence that you can actually treat intra-abdominal hypertension and severe pancreatitis with CRRT. So I will have a caveat here and say most of what I'm going to cover now is very small <laughs> studies. This first one is a prospective observational trial. We looked at continuous venovenous hemofiltration in patients that had severe, abdominal, um, severe pancreatitis and intra-abdominal hypertension. And what you saw, this is not a prospective, it's just a cohort or, or this is just an observational trial. This is not randomized. But 20, none of these patients got decompressed, but 24 hours after institution of CVVH, and this is independent of volumes they took off, right? they had a decreased level of intra-abdominal pressure by five or six points. They went from abdominal compartment syndrome to intra-abdominal hypertension, and it continued to decrease the longer they stayed on CRRT. Again, independent of volume removed. Their pro-inflammatory cytokine levels went down. And so they concluded that CVVH decreases intra-abdominal pressure, decreases inflammatory cytokines, and may improve vascular permeability. This next is a prospective non-randomized trial. So what did that mean? They had 75 patients that presented with severe acute pancreatitis, and they either got the therapy or not based off their willingness to accept it. Right? So this was high-volume hemofiltration, and what they were running, these patients were being run at a dose of 75 mLs per kilo per hour of CRT, so this is really high dose. And again, they were randomized just based off whether they were agreed to accept it. If you look, they were pretty well matched. Their Apache 2 scores were about the same. Their necrosis rate was about the same. And so what you saw in this group is that their 28-day survival was significantly higher than the ones that had 72 hours of um, high-volume hemofiltration. Um, they were even greater if they happened to have acute kidney injury. Right? So this was independent of acute kidney injury. This was just for severe acute pancreatitis. And you looked, their Apache 2 scores, their temperature, and their urine volume were all improved from the short-term high-volume hemofiltration. And so again, small study, but they said that this high-volume hemofiltration looks like it improves clinical outcome decreases abdominal compartment syndrome, intra-abdominal hypertension, and they recommended it being initiated even before the patient develops acute kidney injury. This last study, which is published last year, was a meta-analysis of all the available studies that were out there, some comparatives and some case series, so only a total of 354 patients. But again, in all the studies, improved mortality, cytokine levels, clinical parameters, Apache 2 and SOFA scores, intracellular calcium, all these same things, but they admit all the data is limited. You know, so maybe there's a role for CRT and high-volume CRT early in these patients. Maybe it's just an intra-abdominal hypertension and an abdominal compartment syndrome patients. Maybe it's in the patient that is escalating out of control. 
Maybe it's the patient that already has acute kidney injury. Clearly more studies need to be done, but think about it in your armamentarium of treating these patients if they're not doing well. Just very quickly, just to talk briefly about hypertriglyceridemia in these patient population. I think I'm running away. Oh, I'm just about out of time. Just remember, there's, not, there's nothing out there that tells you what to do. Right? We tend to give plasmapheresis for these patients, but though it has a significant correlation with decreased triglyceride levels, it has not been proven to decrease severity of pancreatitis. Um, there's not very good studies out there. It's really compelling to think that it might because their, their levels reduce so quickly. We tend to still offer it, but it's not clear whether we should be or not. The main medical therapy is fibrates. There's also some information out there about infusion of insulin in these patients, which tends to activate lipoprotein lipase, but can be a little bit dangerous if you have patients that are hi aren't hyperglycemic because are you gonna run a glucose infusion and an insulin infusion? And there was old data about heparin infusions, but it's no longer recommended for two reasons. It looks like there's a rebound and the patients develop worsened hypertriglyceridemia later. Plus there's a risk of having significant, um, significant local complications and bleeding into the pancreas. So, I'm going to step, obviously we're sort of at a loss of time. When I'm going to skip over most of the interventional treatment, I'm just going to sum it up in a couple of words, is that if you operate on pancreatitis early, patients die. They do poorly. They have a high mortality. They have a high complication rate. They have a high intestinal fistula rate, a high pancreatic fistula rate. Most patients can be treated with percutaneous, well, over 50% of patients can be treated with percutaneous drainage alone. I'm going to say that again. So all the studies that have looked at like step up and going from <clears throat> percutaneous drainage up to a minimally invasive retroperitoneal dissection versus open necrosectomy, 50% of all the patients that go into the step up group can be treated with percutaneous drainage alone. When you compare a minimally invasive approach to an open approach, patients do way better if they can have a minimally invasive approach. Some of that is selection, right? But there are several randomized trials that really randomized open necrosectomy versus um, retroperitoneal dissection, not just what did you happen to get based off of what, you know, what disease process did you have. And there's an improvement if you can wait late, wait till week, weeks four to six of the disease, use a minimally invasive approach or bridge a minimally invasive approach with a bunch of catheters, and then do a minimally invasive retroperitoneal approach to these patients in terms of treatment. There's a reduction in mortality, a reduction in complications, a reduction of cost to treat, and an improvement in outcomes in all the patients. Questions? <clears throat> 